This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. All these starry-eyed teenage- teenagers wanting to come up and sing. Can we sing Emmanuel? I mean, how could you look at that face and say no? Okay. Okay, I already did those. <clears throat> okay, and I've already forgotten what time I'm supposed to stop. 11.35, okay. What are you laughing at? (laughs) I'll tell you. There are only so many things you can remember. Okay, prayer warrior. Let's look at the prayer life of Jesus. And again, like his healing, it's it's non-programmatic. It's non-programmatic. Sometimes his prayer is three words long, and sometimes his prayer is all night long. Sometimes he's in the wilderness. You know, it just... um, We'll we'll look at it. Um, Here's a list. I've got 16 uh, times in the the Gospels that uh, Jesus prays. And it's interesting. Luke is the Gospel that's particularly interested in Jesus' prayer life. Um, One of the most, and we've studied that here before, the the fact that there are things that Mark is interested in that that Luke's not interested in or that Matthew's interested in that the others aren't. and Luke is particularly interested in Jesus' uh, uh, prayer life. And only Luke tells us in Luke 3.21, as Jesus was being baptized, he was praying as he was being baptized. Okay? That's Luke 3.21. Uh, Mark 1.35, you don't have to write, well, are you going to write these down? I'll go slow if you're going to write them down. Luke 3.21, Jesus is praying as he's baptized. Mark 1.35, Jesus prays before dawn in a deserted place. And the word that Mark uses is, is eramos tapas. And we, it's a real hard word, one of those hard words to, under, to, to translate. Wilderness, deserted place, solitary place. And again, you sort of look at the contact, context. It's, not, it's mostly Galilee, so it's not desert like Judean desert. It's, but it may be deserted. It's, uh, there's nobody there. Uh, Luke number three, Luke five sixteen, uh, mentioned Jesus would retreat to pray as the crowds grew. So as his ministry gets more popular, one of the things he would do is get get away and pray. That's Luke five sixteen. Luke six twelve. This is so interesting to me. Before he chooses the twelve, Jesus prays all night long. Interesting. Uh, Luke 6, 12, before he chooses the 12, he prays all night long. And he must have been asking for God to direct him, you know, which ones to choose and praying for each one individually and uh, all those things. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus praises the Father for revealing hidden things in his prayer. Luke, did you ask for the reference again? Uh, Matthew eleven twenty five. Number six in Luke nine eighteen. Uh, there's mention of Jesus praying in private after the feeding of the five thousand. So there again, you see this tendency to after this engagement with a lot of people, he's got to get away and and pray. And that again, that's Luke nine eighteen. Uh, Mark six forty six. Just before evening, Jesus prays on the mountain as the 12 sail into the storm. <laughs> and if you've ever been to Israel and seen the Sea of Galilee, you totally understand how you can, do it, how you can be on a mountain or a hill on the, on the side of the lake and you can see everything on the lake. So he's up there praying and he sees them going, you know, going into the storm. That's Mark 6.46. Again, only in Luke, Luke 9.28, Luke tells us that as he is transfigured, he's praying. 
So when he's being baptized, he's praying. And when the transfiguration happens, he's praying when that happens. Have you ever noticed that? So Luke 9.28. Luke 11.1. See how many of these passages are in Luke? Luke 11.1. As Jesus has finished a private time of prayer, the 12 ask him to teach them to pray. So there's something about his prayer life. They see him and they go, wow, could you teach us to pray like that? Again, that's Luke 11, 1. John eleven forty one, and we're going to look at this. Jesus prays before the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus is an answered prayer. John 12, 28, Jesus speaks, Father, glorify your name, and the Father responds. I love that passage. I have glorified it, and we'll glorify it again. Luke twenty two thirty two. 32, Jesus tells Simon he's been praying for him. And I, for years I read right over that verse, but now that more and more that means so much to me. Simon, I've been praying for you, and after you turn around, you go strengthen your brothers. Simon, I, and I wonder if Jesus ever says to me, okay, Mike, I've been praying for you. You know, Mike, I've been praying for you, and so stop messing around, you know. <laughs> Get serious, you know. Or maybe be less serious. <laughs> you know, cheer down, Mike. Oh, I saw the, I saw the, the best meme on, uh, it was like there, on the top of Mount Everest, there are all these uh, dead bodies. So maybe you should just lighten up a little bit. Uh, I'm not getting it right, but I thought, I thought it was pretty good. Maybe you should just lighten up a little bit. Okay, sorry. So yeah, Luke twenty two thirty two. Jesus tells Simon he's been praying for him, and you just you've got to believe he does that with all disciples. He's praying for each of them by name. You know that's his, that's what his prayer life looks like. Uh, Luke twenty two thirty nine. Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives that the cup will be taken away, and an angel comes and comfort. As a response to his prayer, an angel comes and comforts him. Of course, of course, because of course the cup isn't taken away. John 17, 1 through 26, that's the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. That's a long prayer. Okay. John 17, 1 through 26. And again, double check these numbers because I'm dyslexic. And numbers mean absolutely nothing to me, so double check them. Uh, Matthew 26, 36, 44, 42. Mark, 6, Mark 14, 32. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, I know. I'm, I'm going to say it again. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> Matthew 26, 36, comma, 42, comma, 44, period. Mark 14, 32. Matthew 26, 36, verse 42, verse 44, and also Mark 14, 32. Jesus prays in Gethsemane three times. That's interesting to me. He prays three times. From the cross, he prays three times. There's a symbolic number. So he prays in Gethsemane three times. And finally, this is the last one, Luke 23, 34. That's Luke 23, 34. Jesus prays three times from the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. And my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So pray three times from the cross. Okay? This is Jesus' teaching on prayer. Okay? You're all caught up? Um, in Matthew 5, he says that we should pray for people who persecute us. And this is all in consistent with loving your enemies, you know. You pray for people that persecute you. In Matthew 6, he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Uh, that's not to say that formula prayers are wrong, but that's not all you do, and the, and the point is not, you know, lots of empty phrases. In Matthew 7, he basically boils down the act of prayer to ask, seek, knock. There's the simplest teaching on prayer. Ask, seek, and knock. In Matthew 18, he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything 
they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So that's his, his teaching on kind of corporate prayer or prayer chains or however, however you want to call that. So he's encouraging us to pray together about things. So that's part of his teaching. Um, in Matthew 21 and Mark 11, he says, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, that's not a magic formula. Asking in faith implies that you ask according to God's will, not I need a new Lamborghini, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. A prayer of faith is, in, is informed by God's word and the Holy Spirit. And so it's not, it's not a magic formula. It's not an incantation. Um, um, in Luke 18, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So there's G Jesus teaching on prayers, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. And if you've had a wayward child, you know exactly what that's all about. Think of all the wayward children he has, God has. <laughs> you know, you, for example. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Luke 22. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So part of his teaching and prayer is that it's, it helps us to not be tempted. You know. And again, this has to do with praying in faith and, you know, according to this, this, the Spirit, according to this, the Word. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then again, asking in his name implies a certain value system or certain, you know, the content of what you're going to ask for. People don't ask to become rich in Jesus' name. That's not in a that's not in accordance with asking in his name. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Because so many people just think it's a, it's a formula. Yeah, it's like a magic thing. Oh, I want a new Lamborghini in Jesus' name. And then, and then it doesn't happen, and then, then, then they doubt God, you know, or, or doubt Jesus. And that's, it, they just, it's not, that's not how it works. And it's not about it working. It's about being faithful. Okay, this is Jesus at prayer. These are, I'm working on a book on, uh, I, I want to call it The Galilean, but the publishers always change. When I love a title, they always change it to something else that they think is better. And uh, better, not better, but they think it's better. Um, but it's, it's based on this idea of, I want to know every detail about the life of Jesus that can be known. And, and the back of the book has at least, right now, 50, at least 50 lists and the lists are things like this. You know, how many times he's in Galilee, how many times when does he pray, when is, which, and I know it's details. And I, and I told you, there's a difference between knowing about him and knowing him. I understand that. But once you know him, you want to know about him. Okay? So that's what this is about. And, and that's what these, these are, are coming from. Uh, so Je this is Jesus at prayer. And I'm going to repeat some things I've already said. Uh, I've already said this. Jesus is praying at his baptism and the transfiguration. Huh? Um, Luke three twenty one. Luke nine twenty nine. You got pushy over there, aren't you? <laughs> Thank goodness I have the numbers. You know, if I hadn't had the number, I was, was going to make something up and just let you write it down. <laughs> well, that's Matthew eighty five sixty. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and as he was praying, heaven was opened. And Luke 9, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became, became dazzling white. I already said that, but it bears saying again. So here's Jesus at prayer. Uh, here's the first one. Jesus usually prays alone in solitary places and often all night long. You wonder if someone who was one with the Father prayed all night long. You would think, I don't know. And here's some, here's some passages. This is Matthew 14. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
and it was evening, he was there alone. Um, This is Mark 6. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. This is Luke 6. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. He prays all night long. This is the first chapter of Mark. In the early morning, while it was still dark, a quick sidebar. You know, uh, in, in Jesus' day, nobody has a, you know, no clocks, right? No Rolexes. Not that this is not a Rolex. Uh, um, so how do you determine time in Jesus? How do you know it's morning in Jesus' time? And here's how they did it. You, had a, you have a stick that has two pieces of yarn. One's black and one's blue. When it's light enough that you can tell the difference between black and blue, it's morning. Huh? Pretty cool, huh? And I think that's fairly precise. I mean, of course, if it's cloudy, blah, blah, blah. But that's one, that's one way they determine time. And then you, after that, you've got the sun to tell you what time it is. Um, now I lost my place. Okay, thank you. <coughs> this is Luke 5. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. That's that Eremos Tapas probably. Luke 9, 18, and it happened while he was praying in private, the disciples were with him and questioned him saying, who do the people say I am? So he's, he's there praying. And at this point, the disciples are with him as he's praying. So he doesn't just always go off by himself. Sometimes he prays. And we're going to see this strange, really to me, kind of a strange prayer in when he raises Lazarus. He's praying to the father and he says, you know, I'm really saying this for them to hear this. So he does a prayer for the people to hear. Uh, so we'll, we'll, but we'll look at that in a second. Okay, so the, that's basically he usually pray, prays alone in a solitary place. Here's the second point. His prayers are short, four words long. That's John 12, 28. That prayer is only four words long. Or they last all night long and everything in between. So there's no program. Just like with the healing, there's no program. He, uh, he's non-programmatic. Okay, this is the third point. His prayers are both public and private. The public prayer I'm talking about is the Lazarus one, uh, the John eleven forty two. I'm saying this so that people can hear, hear it. Okay? This has always interested me, and I want to know more about it, but there's just not more information. I'm really interested in the references to Jesus' attitude, his physical attitude when he prays. There's only three references. Uh, in, Mark, uh, in Matthew 26, it says, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face. So he falls on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but what you will. So one reference is he falls down. Of course, I don't know if that's the consistent, this is in agony, so it's not like he, his, that's his consistent thing. But, the, but two, there are two references to him looking up when he prays. Uh, this is John 11, the one we're going to look at, Lazarus. Uh, then Jesus looked up and said to the Father, I thank you that you heard me. And then in John 17, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his, his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. So the, we have three references to his attitude. He falls down, or he looks up. And do you ever look up when you pray? Because I, I don't. We, we bow our heads when we pray. But I'm trying that. I've been trying that, to look up when I pray, and, and just to break the, the habit. Okay? Um, next point. I haven't numbered them, so I don't know what number it is. Four. Uh, Jesus prays repeatedly. And I already mentioned that. In the garden, he prays three times. He, re- he repeats the same prayer three times in the garden. That's Matthew 26. And then from the cross, he prays three times. So he prays repeatedly. Um, and I've already said this too, but I'll say it again. Jesus prays for individuals. And that's Luke 22, saying to Peter, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
And then finally, last, Jesus encourages us in prayer to ask in his name. And that's this new privilege. That's a new, that's a new thing. I won't call it an innovation because it's not necessarily rabbinic. But this, this new privilege we have is that we can ask in his name. And, uh, and again, we don't let it just become a formula. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I, I, that's what I do. I shouldn't do that. My prayer life is, is not uh, exemplary. I'm, I'll just confess that to you. Uh, this is John 16. And also in 11, I think he says the same thing. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do, I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Because the Father himself loves you. That's John 16, 26. Okay, so let's look at some of the prayers of Jesus. Okay, this is John 17. This is the longest prayer we have. And prior to this, we've had five chapters of Jesus' final words to his disciples. And coming at the end of that comes this long chapter, this long prayer. This is the most personal word we have to the Father, and it reveals the character of Jesus' relationship to God. Ready? 17.1. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven, so he looks up, and prayed, Father, the time has come. Now, repeatedly in John, it says his time had not yet come. They tried to do this. They tried to seize him, but his time had not yet come. Well, finally, now it says, he says, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. This prayer is about unity and glory. Those are, the, those are stuck in his mind as he's praying these things. He wants us to be one, and he wants God to be glorified. So glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all men that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, this is eternal life, that, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. This is the only place Jesus refers to himself by his name. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I have brought you glory. See, he's talking about glory again. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in the presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's Proverbs 8.23. That's Jesus thinking in Proverbs. He's not quoting it. He's thinking in it. Um, so there's Jesus praying for himself. Now Jesus turns and prays for the disciples. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Now, they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Um, I said Jesus repeats this fact in almost every chapter of John. I, have to, I would have to check that. Don't write that down. Uh, now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. There's that sent business from John. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory, there's glory again, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And you almost hear the concern in his voice as he speaks those words. I'm no longer in the world, but they're still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. This is the only place Jesus refers to God as Holy Father. In the 0.09% of what we have. So... Um, uh, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So here comes the unity. So there's glory and unity. That's stuck in his mind. Um, while I was with them, I protected them um, and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None of them has been lost 
except the child of hell, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Again, his desire that we know, not simply joy, but his joy, my joy. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is that you, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil world, evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me, there's the sent business, he's the sent one. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now we, we take on that sending. We're, Jesus is the sent one, now we're the sent ones. I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctify means set, set apart for special use. Okay, so he prays you know, for himself, he prays for the disciples, now he prays for us. And um, the structure is beautiful. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And that's us. Jesus just prayed for us, y'all. He had us in mind when, he was, when this was going on. That's amazing to me. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Now, for people who sow division, I, I say, you know, one of the last things Jesus asked the fathers that we, we be one. Is that not enough for you? You know, there's a lot of uh, racial reconciliation work yet to be done in my town. But one of the things when, when, when the friction comes up, one of the things I say is, he wants us to be one. Is that not enough for you? You know, our disunity is contrary to his will. So, um, I lost my place. Okay. Um, that they may be one. Father, just as you were in me and I in them, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory, there's glory again, that you gave me, uh, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me. You see his mind? You see how these things that he repeats? That's how he's thinking. That you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. My note says, God lavishes his love on us in Christ. Before Jesus, you cannot deny the fact that God is love. You can't stand before Jesus and say that God is in love. And here's, <coughs> he's closing. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am to, and to see my glory. There's glory again. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I've revealed you to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be theirs and that I myself may be in them. So, incredible prayer. But you can just see, I love you can see his mind. It's like he gets, I don't want to say, I'm not saying this in a pejorative way. It's like he gets sort of stuck on things. He's thinking, his identity, you sent me. I want them to know that you sent me. And now I'm going to send them. They're going to be the sent ones. And I want them to be one. And then he'll repeat that three or four different ways. And then I want, I want uh, you know, unity and glory. That's what seems to be on his mind. Yeah. What did you say the three main themes of this? Uh, the main themes of this are, I thought I said unity and glory. Did I say there were three? Yeah. Yeah, unity and glory. That seemed to be, I mean, as I read it, there may be more things that I'm certainly, and see, that's what's so unique about the word. You'll read this again. You'll mem memorize this. You'll cross-stitch it and hang it on your wall, right? And then two or three years later, there's some huge thing that you never saw before that God reveals to you, and that's why this word is alive. It's not Shakespeare, you know? Yes. How would you define glory? How would I define glory? 
Uh, I have to think about that. I don't usually think before I talk. Uh, <laughs> I think there are physical manifestations, which are obviously lumin luminous, being luminous and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but, but I think glory is, is recognizing uh, the worth. What does worship mean? Worth-ship. To worship God is to celebrate his worth. And I think that's connected with his, that, give, that brings him glory, recognizing his worth. So, um, but there's, a, I don't know, there's a lot more that can be said. But, but when I think he's stuck on this idea of glory, I think he's, part of that is that we recognize that he's worthy, that he's glorious, he, that he's worthy. There's worth and glory. Does that make sense? No? I'm sure there's more that can be said. I just, I'm not prepared to answer that. That's just, that's the best I can do. That's the best I can do. I can do some homework for you. And, oh, yes. My husband says a good definition for glory is the weight of his presence. Okay, a good definition of glory is the weight of his presence. That's good. Lewis wrote that book, The Weight of Glory, right? Yeah. So weight, worth. But again, weight is worth. Yeah. To me, it just so for some reason in my mind, the, the idea of worth is connected with glory. He's worthy. That's we glorify him because he's worthy. Worthship. Okay? So let's do Lazarus. Oh, we got plenty of time. Yes, I'm sorry. What? Calling focused. Go ahead. I said rather than stuck on it. He's focused. Something okay. us ADD people don't understand. Yeah, thank you. That's good. He's focused. I like that. That's not a word I use very much. Yeah. <laughs> He's focused on these ideas. Yeah. I'm well rebuked. Thank you. Um, okay, let's look at John 11. What? What, did somebody groan? Oh, okay. I thought y'all said, oh. Okay. What's that? What's going on? Is there a revolt? Is there a revolt? It's... Uh, okay. Death of Lazarus. Uh. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, we haven't met them yet. John just assumes you know them. You already know them because you know the, 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 the story of Jesus. So you know that these, uh, you, you, you know, you know who these people are. And Bethany is, um, I mean, Lazarus' tomb is there. And it's just right over the hill from uh, Jerusalem. My impression is you could take a bow and arrow and arc it and shoot from Bethany and hit Jerusalem. It's that close. In fact, during Passover, the borders of Israel, or the borders of Jerusalem were extended out to include Bethany. It was part of the city. But they're just very, it's a suburb. It's a very near suburb of Jerusalem. That's my point. And uh, there's a guy right across from Lazarus' tomb. There's a shop, and he sells slings, right, like David. And whenever we come, there's two, there's two guys. There's, a, there's a, a, a beggar there named Zed who could run IBM. He's always there. I bring him M&Ms. And he is just the most sweet guy. But then there's this guy who has a shop across the alley. And when we come, he always comes out with a slingshot. He's going to sell a slingshot. Well, he gives us a demonstration. And it is scary. You know, and boom, he shoots this thing over the valley. And there are houses over there. And we always, you know, what, you know, what are you doing? And he says, oh, it's okay. My mother-in-law lives over there. <laughs> so... I don't know if his shop was there in Bethany then, but it's there now. Probably was, you know. So a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary. Mary is Miriam and her sister Martha. This Mary, 
whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So he goes, you know that story. Well, that's, that's her. See what he's doing? Um, so the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love. So John is not the only beloved disciple. Lazarus is also described as the one that Jesus loved. That's the only kind of disciples Jesus has. Okay. Uh, so Lord, the one you love is sick. And so Jesus packed up and he started running towards Bethany because he wanted to get there as soon as he could. When Jesus heard this, or when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory. Remember I said earlier, when Jesus sees sickness and, and death, it's an opportunity for God to be glorified. That's how he looks at the world. When there's something hard and something wrong, God's going to get glory from this. So he says, it will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now we're talking about glory again. Uh, Jesus loved, and this is important, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You need to know that because what he's about to do looks like he doesn't love them. He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Yeah. That should bother you. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, see they call him Rabbi. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light the sun. And this is all about timing. He's talking about timing. Uh, it's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Light, my note says, light is always the context in which Jesus walked. He always walked in the light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, this is the Gospel of John, and he's just said something deeply spiritual. So what does that mean? That means they're not going to understand. Our friend Lazarus is falling asleep. Although in the Hebrew Bible, falling, death is sleep is used. It's, it's a common metaphor. They should have gotten this, but they didn't. Um, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And here's John whispering to you. There's the 90-year-old John knowing that you need to know this. So Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, just so you understand that, okay? And when you read the Gospel of John, you really can hear that the Gospels have unique voices. And one of the uniquenesses of John's voice are these parenthetical asides. Matthew does it three times, okay? Mark does it about three or four times. And Mark usually does it to translate an Aramaic word for you. Matthew, or John does it 57 times. 57 times he's saying... Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. And that's why he said that. And uh, it's, to me, it's just fascinating to hear his voice. To get, there, there are a few things like that that are, that are recognizable. And you'll hear a voice, you'll say, well, that sounds like Mark. Because that's how Mark talks. And it's not complicated. It's not hard. That would be a good class, learning to recognize the voices of the Gospels. That's, somebody should do that. <laughs> Someone who has more energy than me should do that. <laughs> Okay. Um, um, yes. Okay. Now, my numbers could be wrong, but I'm close. I'm within five or six. Okay. In 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 Matthew and and when this in the synoptics, it's like three or four times. And I'm, what I'm talking about is a parenthetical aside. And again, that's the decision of a translator, whether it's put in parentheses or not. Now, in my Bible, in John, I put a lot of these statements in parentheses. NIV doesn't do it. But to me, the tone is clearly parenthetical. It's an aside. Um, but John does it 57 times. It may be 53. I may be, but I think it's 57. Is that good? Hmm? Mar oh, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's all like three or four times. Yeah. Um, 
And again, that, that won't be consistent through different translations because different people will put parentheses in different places. The, the original text doesn't have uh, punctuation. It, the, the, uh, most of the original texts don't even have spaces between the words because parchment is so precious, you squish everything together. And sometimes there's a problem because you can't figure out where the word should you know, divide. So don't give the translators such a hard time. They have a tough job. Okay, I'm going there to wake him up. Jesus must begin of his death. Okay, verse 14. So he told them plainly, and this is the tone of his voice. Lazarus is dead. Yet for your sake, so that you may believe, I'm glad I wasn't there. You go, wow. Okay. But what is he saying? Their belief is more important than life and death. That's what he's saying. Their belief is more important than life and death. And so Jesus waited and let his friend die so his disciples would believe. And he knows he's going to raise him. But, but. So I'm glad I was not there, but let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus um, said to the rest of them, let's also go that we may die with him. I call that loyal despair. <laughs> it's despair, but he's being loyal. Let us also go that we may die with him. Um, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. So what is this messianic miracle? Only the Messiah can raise someone who's been dead more than three days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. I guess maybe they've grown together since then or something. But uh, less than two miles um, yeah, Bethany's was le less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Yeah, I'm not going to read. I have, a, I have a long thing on Jewish burial customs, but I don't, we don't need that right now. Uh, when, let's see. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him but Mary stayed at home. And we have this, this what do you call it, when you, you, uh, you make somebody look the same way all the time, this uh, caricature. We have this sort of caricature of Martha. Mark is this twitch who's always doing things and nervous, and Mary is, you know, something else. I don't think those kind of caricatures are, are fair in the first place. Um, but, but Martha is the person who gets things done, right? You don't want to go to Mary's house for supper, you want to go to Martha's house for supper, right? Um, you know, I just think, you know, I really do think there's a lot of sort of ingrained, I don't know, cynicism or something when we caricaturize people like that. But Martha, her, she heard he's coming, so she gets up, she's going to see him. I, and this is just my opinion. I think Mary stayed because her feelings are hurt that he didn't come. Again, I have no, I can't prove that. But the, the emotionality of this is I think Mary said, I can't, I'm not coming, I'm going to just stay here. But, you know, maybe I'm reading my own sinfulness into her, so don't, 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 if that's true, don't, uh, don't you do that. So she heard he was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Uh, and the other thing that's cool is, in, throughout the different Gospels, these characters are the same. They have the same personalities, even in different Gospels, which to me points to the accuracy of the Gospels. See what I'm saying? Nobody made this stuff up. They're talking about real people who consistently acted in certain ways. That's what I'm saying. Um, so, um, okay. Um, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She's saying more than she knows. Okay. And Mary and Martha say the exact same thing to Jesus, and I think it has two completely different meanings coming from two different people. So if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. So what does that indicate? She believes that he can heal somebody. But she doesn't think he can raise somebody from the dead, although he's already done that like two times. Okay. Um, so I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So Jesus just said something deeply spiritual. So what does that mean? He's going to be misunderstood. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection 
at the last day. See, she took that as funeral home talk, right? I go to visit you, you know, your family at the funeral home. Oh, you know, Sarah's going to rise again at the last. I know. Thank you. That's not what he means. <laughs> I know he'll rise again. And here, here he comes. Here it comes. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection. Jesus posits himself as the answer to the question. Now, you've got two choices. This is according to C.S. Lewis. He's either crazy or this is true. That's the only choices you've got. He is not a good moral teacher. Good moral teachers don't say things like this. He's either the son of God or he's crazy. That's the only choices he leaves you with. So this compromising nonsense of Jesus was a great moral teacher, great moral teachers don't say things like this. He's either the son of God or he's not. It's okay. Uh, C.S. Lewis says he's either the son of God or he's a crazy person on the level of someone who says they're a fried egg. That's C.S. Lewis's way of saying it. So I know he'll rise again at the resurrection. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever believes, lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I think that's right up in her face. Do you believe this? And she comes back. Yes, Lord. I believe you're the Christ, the son of God who's coming to the world. There it is. Now, notice, she has made the statement of faith before the miracle. That's important. The miracle isn't like proof so that they'll believe. No, he confronts her and she believes. Okay. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher, interesting, that's what they refer to him. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And so think back. So, so apparently when he was talking to Martha, Jesus said, well, where's Mary? He's asking for you. Okay. Where's Mary? Why didn't she come? Uh, when Mary heard this that he was asking for, she got up quickly and went to meet him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him, a shady place along the road or a well. Uh, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Jewish mourning practices dictated that you go to the uh, grave as many times as you can for the first week. And so they just assumed she's going to the grave. Um, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And that's where you always find Mary. She's always at his feet. That would be a good song. <laughs> she got a notebook out. <laughs> I actually already wrote a song about this. So, yeah, yeah, you're, you're off the hook. Um, there's a whole series of people in the Bible who are at his feet. And I, wrote, I wrote a song called At His Feet, so, which is clearly a, was a huge hit that everybody knows. <laughs> So she saw him and fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same, exact same thing that Martha said, but I think complete, with a completely different emotionality behind it. And I'll say this again, although I've said it before. Jesus gives to each one of these women what they need. Martha needs to talk to him. And so he talks to her about the resurrection. He talks about who he is, and she comes to faith, right? Or she makes this statement of faith. She probably already had faith in him. He knows that Mary just needs somebody to cry with her. And so he weeps with her. See, non-programmatic, right? There's no manual that he's working from that this is how you deal with mourners. No, he's creative and his spirit is really sensitive and he knows Martha needs to be talked to and Mary needs somebody to cry with her. And so that's what he does. And I'm saying that he knows that about you. He knows what our needs are. And we need different things. And, and, uh, and he knows that. So... Uh, so when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along over there also weeping, he was deeply moved. And this is a really interesting word that comes from classical Greek. And it, in classical Greek, it, 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 was, it defined a horse snorting. It was a snort. And so I translate this word shudder. Have you ever been sitting on a horse when they snort? 
a shutter runs right down there. And if you're sitting on them, of course, you, uh, you, know, you shudder too. So I, I think shudder is a good translation. Uh, NIV says deeply moved. Any, what does anybody else's Bible say? Anything different? Greatly troubled. Okay. I think shuddered. I go for shudder. Of course, it's my idea. So, of course, I think it's a good idea. Um, yeah, it's deep emotion. Um, a, lo- a longer translation is, he gave way to such distress of spirit that his body trembled. That's somebody who took a whole sentence to translate that one word, which I think is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. That probably Gene Peterson. That sounds like Gene Peterson. So he shuddered when he saw her weeping. And he says, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord. And Jesus wept. And as you might expect it, Greek. Hebrew doesn't have the specificity, but Greek does. Greek has at least two different words about cr- for crying. The, worst, the first one is klio, the word we get our word cry from. And that means to boo-hoo, okay? Klio. Uh, uh, but the word that's used here is a very specific word. It's edacrosin. The, word, the Greek word for tear is dacru. So the image of a dacrosin is, remember the old uh, uh, commercial with a the, with the Native American guy who turned and there was a tear going down his cheek? That's a dacrosin. It's the, the images of a tear silently going down your cheek. So Jesus sees them crying and sees Mary crying, and he didn't start going, <laughs> he just looks over and there's a tear going down his cheek. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, so Jesus wept, to weep silently within oneself. Uh, in Luke 19:41, Jesus weeps Clio uh, uncontrollably. And Paul tells us we should weep with those who weep, and so that's what Jesus is doing. Um, now, this is John, and so I'm assuming that some, something just deeply spiritual just happened. So I'm assuming the next word, or the next verse is them not understanding. Now, that's just my assumption, but I think that's a safe assumption. The Jews, uh, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So my question is, is this a misunderstanding? Is he crying for a different reason? Is he crying because it's a death-impregnated world and people don't understand that he's, he's the resurrection? I mean, I, it doesn't say, and so I don't know. But if, if Mark, or if John is being consistent uh, that this statement from the people is not right. It's, of, course he, of course he loves him. You know, he's not, I'm not saying he doesn't, but I'm just saying that may not be the reason he's crying. And, and they don't understand. And that's, that's how this motif works in John. Jesus is consistently misunderstood, beginning in chapter like two, with, you know, or two or three. Everything he says, deeply, uh, deeply spiritual things he says, always misunderstood. So he gets more and more cut off and more and more alone until at the end, he's all alone on the cross. That's how it works. The motif of misunderstanding is my master's thesis. And, um, so I'm committed. I'm committed to it. Uh, so um, the, the Jews, for, for, for good or for bad, or for right or for wrong, say, see how much he loved him. But listen to the misunderstanding. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Yes. Kept this man from dying. He can heal him, but nobody raised anybody from the dead, especially not after four days. Why? Because you stinketh. <laughs> right? Yes. I have a I don't know what the timeline is. I used to. Uh, he's, up, he's up in Eph- Ephraim, a village that's, uh, I mean, I know how far it is to drive there. I'm not sure how far it is to walk there, but the, the idea is, yeah, Lazarus dies. No, no, Lazarus is sick, and they they get to him, and Jesus knows he's going to die. In fact, he knows he has died, and then they leave and go back. So, uh, at one point, I had the timeline. Somebody may have the timeline all worked out, but that's the idea. Ephraim is pretty far from from Bethany. It's up north. By the time he got there, he's been dead for four days. Yeah. Well, he's been in the grave for four days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they put you in the grave the same day you die in this culture. They clean you up and wrap you up with spices and put you in a bed of spices to just help to control the smell. 
and then they put you in a tomb and they close you off. Two-stage burial in Judaism. You're, uh, you're, in the, you're in the tomb for a year and you rot. And then someone who really loves you, they come in, usually women, they would come and wash the bones and put them in a, an ossuary, a bone box. And uh, if you go to the, uh, the Mount of Olives, even today, they've got caves that are full of these bone boxes, ossuaries. And sometimes there'll be one that's this big. It's an infant. Now, previous to that, previous to bone boxes, uh, they would wash your bones and they would put you in a pile with your ancestors. And that was being gathered to your fathers. Yeah, that was the... The team and I was we were in a, 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 a Garden of Gethsemane one time. And I've got a picture. I stuck my phone. There was a hole in the wall, and I stuck my phone in the hole and took a picture. And when I looked, it was a big pile of human bones. So apparently, it was some old place where they had thrown the thrown the bones. But that's being gathered to your fathers. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Jesus. Okay. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. And Martha goes, that's a bad idea. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by that, this time there's a bad odor. He's been dead for four days. Uh, sidebar. When I was in high school, I worked in a, uh, at a funeral home. Uh, they had an ambulance service attached to them. Uh, Philip, uh, Phillips Robinson uh, funeral home. Back in those days, you, you, those of you who are older remember that the funeral homes ran ambulances, which is a really odd conflict of interest if you ask me. Uh, but the, the, city, the city didn't have ambulances. The funeral homes ran ambulances. And at that point, I wanted to be a doctor. And I wanted to be like my dad. And so I, I, I was the youngest EMT ever in uh, the state of Tennessee. I got a provisional EMT thing. And, uh, and I was working 16, 17 years old. So it's a funeral home. Well, all this is to say, I was around dead bodies a lot. And uh, I worked from midnight till eight in the morning. And um, if you see a dead body, there's no way they're getting up. But one time we picked up a body that had been dead for four days. A trucker had uh, gone up in his sleeper cab and had had a heart attack and died. And he'd been in that cab for four days. Okay, so they, they picked him up during the day. And in the back, we had a, a, a there was the funeral home proper. Uh, but then in the back, we had what was called the stink room. It was a separate building, and it was for things like this. Okay, well, the guy that picked him up came back in. I was just coming into work. He said, we just picked someone up. Uh, he said, he says, you, you, I bet you can't tell whether this guy's black or white. I'm 16. What are you talking about? You know, I'll show you. You couldn't tell if he was black or white. You know, the, he was swollen. His, his skin was kind of this dark liver colored, so you couldn't tell if he was, a, if he was black or white. And uh, it was, yeah. So that's what Lazarus looks like at this point. He's unrecognizable. He's swollen, you know. Um. Another quick side. Can I say one, just one more quick sidebar about black and white? Um, you, uh, you're not black. I'm not white, Okay. You're dark brown. I'm light brown. I just think that's it's that simple. It's not black and white. You know, my friends at, in, 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 the, in Nashville, I put our arms together. I say, that, you're not black. I'm not white. You're dark brown. I'm light brown. I don't know. I just think you need to hear, somebody need to hear that. That's a, you're melanin I'm melanin deprived, he said. <laughs> well. <laughs> I just, I don't know. Calm down, Mike. I just think that's a, we need to talk about that more. Okay, so take away the storm, uh, take away the stone. But, Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, again, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? That was verse four. So they took this, away the stone Jesus looked up, and here's this odd prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. So I'm praying this so the people here can hear me say this. 
and that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, what did Jesus say in John 10, 37? He said, my sheep will hear my voice. That's what this is. Uh, Lazarus come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of cloth and a, and a cloth. This is a, a, a separate cloth around his face. It's called a sudorion. The Greek word for sweat is sudor. And so you, you're wrapped up, right? But then around your face is a separate cloth, sudorion. And the details, we have these marvelous details of the tomb of Jesus after the resurrection. And the details are the cloths that he'd been wrapped in are lying in their folds, almost like he evaporated through them. He, go, he goes through doors. So, but the sudor, sudorion, the cloth that was wrapped around his face, is folded up and over to the side. Now, it, I think those details are there for a reason. Now, my interpretation is there's, it, it shows a lack of haste. Whether it was Jesus or an angel someone unwrapped this cloth around his face and folded it up and put it over to the side. I just think those, those details are there for a reason. Of course, it's an eyewitness detail. It's someone who actually looked in the tomb and saw that. So the linen cloths were lying in their folds and the sudorion was folded up and laid off to the side separately. We have the details of the tomb of Jesus. So Lazarus still has this cloth wrapped around his face. Um, so where was I? Okay. Yeah, uh, the dead man came out, stripped the cloth, and, and, the cloth and, uh, and the cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Um, yeah. Therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And they know what they're doing. Then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's the, 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 the chief priests and, and the scribes and the Pharisees. It's all together, the Sanhedrin. It's the Supreme Court. Just think of that. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will put his trust in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation, which is exactly what happened eventually. Um, so we'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. If Lazarus was all bound up, how did he come out? I have no idea whether he's, you know, and he's got a cloth around his face. So how does he even see? I don't know. Maybe, maybe his legs were separate. I don't know. I don't know. But that's a great question. Okay, and just because we don't know the answer doesn't mean it's not a great question. But I've, I've tried to imagine that too. I've seen in some Jesus movies, they just kind of show him, you know, kind of doing this or something. It's a good question. You're a very practical person, I think. Yeah. But yeah, but the cloth is still around his face, so how does he even see? Yeah. I don't know. I got an even better question. How is it that he just got raised from the dead? I mean, we're, we're worried about how does he walk? But we know that, don't we? We know how he just got raised from the dead. Okay, that's, that's brilliant. I've never heard that. He said the conditions of the grave clothes in Jesus' tomb indicate that the body wasn't stolen. That's, you're a lawyer, right? That's brilliant. I mean, I've never seen that in any commentary. That's a, that's a really good idea. Yeah, ooh, you're gonna hear that again. Yeah, yeah. You'll hear that again. You know, I was just thinking the other day, the indications of the grave clothes show that Jesus' body wasn't stolen. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike, you are so smart. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome to all the royalty. You can have half of them, trust me. Have you heard, um, quick sidebar, I know we're, we're out of time. Um, uh, I, can't, I forget her name, some very famous artist got 11 million hits on Spotify, and her royalty check was $9. That's where royalties have gone. Yes. What, Lazarus is too? Hmm. Oh, I didn't see, I was there two years ago, and it, we, I mean, we go there every year. I didn't know it was Hamas, and so now it's not good, huh? Okay. 
He said, he, he said Lazarus' tomb is in Hamas territory now, so it's a dangerous place to go. Yeah. Okay. He says Lazarus' body wasn't resurrected technically. Is that what you're saying? Because he didn't come through the grave clothes. He was resuscitated. Interesting. But he's been four dead. I mean, four days, he's all bloated and I don't know. Huh? He has to die again. Okay. Okay. I get that. Okay. Okay. I never thought this is, uh, it's hard to think of new things when you're kind of up here on a hot, in the hot seat. Thank you. That's a cool idea. Okay, so another reason Lazarus died is, and Jesus cries is Jesus is brokenhearted because so many of these people won't come to believe in him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, again, we think in Greek, and we, think, we always think the answer is one thing. But a lot of times the answer is lots of things. I think there are lots of reasons he cries. I think it's a death-impregnated world. I think that people are confused. They don't understand who he is. And they can't, I mean, like Martha, she, they all think he could have healed her, but they're disappointed I mean, sorry, they all think that he could have healed him, but nobody seems to understand that he can rise, raise him from the dead, even though he says, I am the resurrected. I think there's just all of that swirling around. And uh, yeah, he's, but he's deeply moved. He's shuddering. He's very emotional w- with all this going around. He's not calmly thinking, ah, no problem, I'm going to raise him from the dead. You know, No, Bill Lane used to say it's a death-impregnated world. It's a death-impregnated world. Okay. <laughs> 